Okay, we have a very interesting question uh, that was submitted to us, and it is concerning the use of the term God. Should we stop using the use of the term God because it's several passages found in the Holy Scriptures? And before we go ahead and answer that question, we have a few questions that we want to address first. And this one was also submitted to us. The question goes like this, dear brother. My father wanted to ask this question, who will judge men on Judgment Day? Is it God or Christ? We are debating on this topic because we said, of course, it's the Father who will judge us. Thank you, Paul. So who is going to judge us on Judgment Day? Is it God, Yahuwah, or is it the Christ, Yahusha, Hamashiach? I would like to answer that question by going to the book of Acts 17, 30 to 31. Truly, these times of ignorance got overlooked. But now commands all men everywhere to repent, because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. So the question is, who's going to judge us? Is it God? Is it Christ on the day of judgment? Here the Bible tells us about the day appointed by Yahuwah, wherein he will judge the entire world. So who is going to judge? It is Yahuwah God through his son, the man whom he has ordained. Who is that man, his son, whom he has ordained? The one who was risen from the dead. We all know who that is, right? Who is that? Another than our king, our Mashiach, Yahushua. So to answer the question, who is going to judge? On the day of judgment, it is Yahuwah through our king, Yahushua. This is why Yahushua said in John 5.2, For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son. So here we can see that judgment, the authority to judge, is inherent in the Father. Because after all, he is the creator of the heavens and the earth and so it is his inherent right to do whatever he wants with his creation yahushua is the judge appointed judge of all things because it was committed to him by the one who is inherently the judge of all things so the authority to judge was given who our king yahushua this is why in matthew 28 18 and yahushua came and spoke to them saying all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And so all authority in heaven and on earth was given by Yahuwah, who has authority over heaven and earth by virtue of creation, to his son as the inheritor of that authority. This is why Yahusha says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, which includes the authority to Judge. And when it comes to judgment day, there are two way, two types of judgment. We're going to face the judgment seat of Yahuwah and the judgment seat of Yahusha the Christ. What is the distinction between the two? In the book of Revelation 20, 12 to 15, and I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And books were open, and another book was open, which is the book of life. The dead would judge according to what they had done, as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. 
and each person was judged according to what he had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And so what we read there is the last judgment written in Revelation 20. This will take place after the millennial kingdom. On this appointed day, when there's going to be great judgment, the Bible says all people are going to be presented before the throne. And before the throne, books will be opened. The book of life and the book of works. Those whose names are not listed in the book of life, what will happen to them? will be cast into the lake of fire. So what we have here is the judgment of those who don't belong to Yahusha. This is also called the white throne judgment or the last judgment. And we don't want to face this judgment because if we were to face this judgment, it's, it most certainly spells doom for us. However, there seems to be a glimmer of hope because it does mention the book of works are open. And so Yahuwah and our king Yahushua were going to also open the book of works and it will be up to them whether to save or not to save on that day. It turns out in the NIV, it mentions standing before the throne but in the New King James Version, it mentions standing before God and books were open. It doesn't really make a big difference because the throne represents Yahuwah. And the one at his right hand is our king, Yahusha. The book of life belongs to who? Our king, Yahusha. And authority was also given him to judge all of mankind. So there is the last judgment that will take place after the millennial kingdom. Now, who will not have to go through this judgment? Let's read the book of 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Here, Apostle Paul is specifying a judgment that will take place for those who belong to Yahushua. This is why Apostle Paul mentions the judgment seat of Christ. This is different from the judgment that will take place in Revelation chapter 20. This will take place only for those who belong to our King Yahushua. This is why this is the judgment seat of Christ. Hence Apostle Paul, when he said, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. He includes himself. This is why he says we. And so those who belong to Christ, like the Apostle Paul, are going to face the judgment seat of Yahusha HaMashiach. Now, what's the purpose of this judgment? Well, let's read the book of Romans 14, not 10 to 13. But why do you judge your brother? Or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, as I live, says Yahuwah, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us shall give account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not judge one another and more. 
but rather resolve this not to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in our brother's way. What is the purpose of facing the judgment seat of Yahushua the Christ? It is to give an account of ourselves to God. Because when we were called into fellowship with Yahushua, there are certain works and expectations that we are supposed to do. It doesn't mean that just because we have been added to baptism into the body of our King Yahushua, that we are no longer to do anything else. Yahuwah expects us to fulfill certain works. However, what is clear when we face the judgment seat of Christ is Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Yahushua, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So for those who belong to Yahushua, and they face the judgment seat of Yahushua, there's no condemnation. In other words, we have salvation. Then what is the purpose of the judgment seat of our King Yahushua? 2 Timothy 4, verse 8. Finally, there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day. Not to me only, but also to, to, the, to all who have loved his appearing. And so what is the purpose of this accounting to God? This accounting to our King Yahushua. When those who belong to Yahushua will face the judgment seat of Mashiach. Its purpose is to determine the crown we're going to be given. To determine the reward that we are to receive. You see, for those who belong to Yahushua, our salvation is already certain. However, there's still an accounting concerning the reward that will be given to those who are going to be saved. For this reason, the Apostle Paul encourages and admonishes those who belong to Yahushua to abound in one. Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. So Apostle Paul knows that uh, those who belong to Yahushua were already confirmed. They're going to be saved from the wrath of Yahuwah Abba. We no longer have to face the judgment in Revelation chapter 20. They're spared from that. However, they do have to face the judgment seat of Mashiach for the purpose of giving us our reward. And what is this reward based upon? It's upon the labor that we do in the name of Yahushua. For this reason, what does Apostle Paul instruct and admonish us to do? To abound in our work for the Lord. So when we do the good works for which we were created for, it is never in vain. You know, when you think about it, what we do outside of Mashiach, outside of Yahushua, eventually all that will be in vain. Because eventually everything that we know of, all of creation, as we speak, it's going to be changed. It's going to be transformed. It's going to be destroyed and replaced by new heavens and a new earth. And so when we think of it from that point of view, everything that we do outside of Mashiach, all of that will amount to nothing. But everything we do through Mashiach and in his name, that will last forever. This is why Apostle Paul 
is admonishing us to prepare for the judgment seat of Yahusha so that we can receive a reward from him. It's something he wants to give, and it's something he eagerly longs to give us. This is why in Revelation 22, verse 12, Yahusha says, And behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. And so when it comes to judgment, there are two kinds. There is the judgment, which is at Revelation 20, which is the judgment of the great white throne judgment. That is the last judgment. And there is the judgment seat of the Lamb that belongs to our King Yahusha. And the purpose of that is to determine our reward, which is based upon our work. And so the reward is according to our work. This is why we should never think that the sacrifices we make for the sake of fulfilling our command, the commandments of Yahuwah Abba to Yahusha HaMashiach will ever be in vain. So that's question number one. So to question number two for today. Uh, before we go to our main question, let's go to this one. Is there any truth about this quote? Mizrah is in the Far East. Apparently there are people from Reddit who are really bashing the Iglesia Nebista, trying to expose it as a cult. So this is from a Reddit post. This was submitted to us and they wanted our comments. And the question that we're asking is, does Mizrah really refer to the Far East? When we look at what was attached, the, the uh, graphic that you can see there, you can expand it a little bit. It says, exposing the Iglesia Nequisto cult. And apparently, uh, they are citing a television program hosted by Robert Kellyn, who is, of course, a minister of the Iglesia Nequisto Church of Christ, and it concerns the place of origin. We are against the idea that the far country in the east or the far east is what is referred to in Isaiah. And so let's go look at what is written beneath that picture. We're going to expand it again. And it says the Iglesia de Cristo cult has for a long time been intentionally misleading the, their audience. That's in the Bible. Robert F. Kaleen hosts the East. Mizra being referred to in Isaiah 46, 11 is a 7th century BC reference to the East, the region to which Persia belonged, a far country from uh, the perspective of Israel, not the proper noun Far East, which today is commonly known as a 20th century concept. The Far East, the region to which the Philippines belongs, using the conjunction or with Far East, proper noun, is utterly deceptive, which changes the meaning of East in Isaiah 46, 11. And he goes on to cite a reference work um, from the Jews, from the Biblical Encyclopedia. And he defined, he uses the definition given for Mizra, which of course is what Iglesia Nicristo uses whenever they cite Isaiah 46, 11 and Isaiah 45 down to 6, which is what we will get into a little later. And it says here, Mizra East is used of the Far East with a less definite signification. Isaiah 41, 225, Isaiah 435, Isaiah 46, 11, in describing aspect or direction. The terms 
are used indifferently compared to Kedem in Leviticus 1.16, uh, Josiah 7.2 with Mishrach in 2 Chronicles 5.12 and Corinthians 5 verse 10. In your understand, if you understand English, Far East with a less definite signification is very clear and straightforward. Mishrach East can be used for something in an eastward direction that is unspecified. Simply, Mizrah East means an unspecified East, which may not be in immediate proximity. And so the argument that is used by this Redditor, who is basically bashing uh, um, the English and Christian doctrine, but Mizrah refers to Far East, uses a definition of Mizrah that he found in a biblical encyclopedia. And after quoting the meaning of Mizrah, which is which mentioned which is mentioned here, is used of the Far East with a less definite signification, he goes on to conclude that Mizrah simply means an unspecified East. Now, is that the meaning of Mizrah, an unspecified East? Well, if we look and examine the difference between Mizrah and another Hebrew word for East from the Bible, from the Smith's Bible Dictionary, which I think that is where the Bible encyclopedia.com that he cites comes from, this is what it says, East. And so in Hebrew, there's a distinction to be made between two Hebrew words that is translated in English as East, Kedem and Mizrach, and this is how the authors describe the distinction. The Hebrew term Kedem properly means that which is before or in front of a person and was applied to the East from the custom of turning in that direction when describing the points of the compass, before, behind, the right and the left, representing respectively east, west, south, and north, according to Job 23.89. The term was generally used, uh, the term as generally used refers to the lands lying immediately eastward of Palestine, like Arabia, Mesopotamia, and Babylonia. On the other hand, Mizrach is used of the far east with a less definite signification as found in Isaiah 42, 2, 25, 43, 5, 46, 11. So according to the Smith's Bible Dictionary, there's a distinction to be made between two Hebrew words, which is translated East. What are those two Hebrew words? Kedem and Mizrah. Kedem, what does it refer to? The term is generally used when referring to lands lying immediately eastward of Palestine. On the other hand, when is Mizrach used? When it refers to the far east. I think it's pretty clear from the Smith's Bible Dictionary that the term Mizrach refers to what? Far east. However, the interpretation of this rhetoric he says Mizrach simply means an unspecified east. And how does he come up with that explanation? He refers to the definition far east with a less definite signification. And according to him, if you properly understand English, it becomes very clear and straightforward. 
Mizrah can be used for something in an eastward direction that is unspecified. So for him, when the definition of Mizrah is given as far east with a less definite signification, he is saying that Mizrah is not specifically designated which part of the east it's referring to. And so it could be Middle East, Near East, or Far East because it's not specified. For him, that's the meaning of Far East with a less definite signification. However, if we go back to the dictionary from which this is derived, let's go ahead and take a look at what is being referred to as with a less definite signification. If we go back to the dictionary, the Smith's Bible Dictionary, it says, on the other hand, you notice the author links the two definitions together and relates them to, to contrast the, the two usages of Kedemen, Mizrah, which is why we have the linking phrase, on the other hand, what is being compared and contrasted by using the phrase on the other hand. Well, the author states, Kedem refers to what is before or in front of a person. So generally speaking, it refers to what is lying immediately eastward of Palestine. On the other hand, therefore the connecting phrase on the other hand tells us that Mizrah is different from Kadem because Mizrah is referring to the far east. What part of the far east with less definite signification? And so when we look at his conclusion, that Mizrah means an unspecified east, that is false. In fact, what it actually should read is Mizrah means an unspecified far east. And so he's using uh, the argument from this definition of Mizrah incorrectly by interpreting what it means when it says less definite signification and making the conclusion Mizrah means an unspecified east. No, the fact Mizrah is used means it's far east, but it's an unspecified far east, but far east nonetheless. Now, what also proves that Mizrah is far east? Let's go to Isaiah 43, 5 to 6. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your descendants from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up. To the south, and I'll keep them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. And so what further proves that Mizrah is far east? Here in Isaiah 43, 5 to 6, it mentions east. It mentions west. But in the actual Hebrew that is used, if you go to the Blue Leather Bible, it tells us the Hebrew word is in fact the Hebrew word H4217, referring to or translated as East in English, and it's Mizrak, right? You see it there. And what is the out the usage of the term Mizrak? What is it? What is its definition? What does it mean? What is its how is it used in the Holy Scriptures? According to the Strong's definition, the outline of biblical usage, it is the place of sunrise, east, sunrise, the rising of the sun. And so when we think of the rising of the sun, what do we think of? Not near east or middle east, but something that is far away. This is why the rising of the sun 
it takes place where? In the far east, right? This is why Japan is called the land of the rising sun, far east. Because when you look at it visually, the sun rising, you cannot say, oh, the sun is rising at the middle from your horizon. No, you cannot say that the sun is rising immediately in front of you when you're facing eastward. No. When you say the place where the sun is rising, you go all the way to the back, all the way to the border. The farthest you can go eastward, that's where the sun rises. This is why when Mizrah is used, the equivalent is the sunrise, the place where the sun rises, which means the far east. And to correspond to far east, we have, of course, the Hebrew word for far west, which is ma'arab, Hebrew 4, 6 to 8. And sure enough, it refers to the setting place, the place where the sun sets. And just in the same way we understand these terms visually, when we imagine a sun set, right, it is far west, not the immediate west, or in terms of your reference, but in terms of your reference, it is the, uh, the most extreme part of the West. It is the far West. So that's reason number two. But there's also, also another clue found in Isaiah 43, 5 to 6, which suggests and tells us that East and West mentioned in Isaiah 43, 5 to 6, refers to far East and far West. What is that? Well, let's look at Isaiah 43, 5 to 6. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your descendants from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up. To the south, and I'll bring them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Notice the phrase ends of the earth. I believe the phrase ends of the earth apply both temporally and also spatially. It refers to time and at the same time refers to a place because of the meaning of the word ends in the phrase ends of the earth. What is the Hebrew word ends used in this phrase ends of the earth? It says here from the Blue Letter Bible, ends is katzeh, Hebrew 7097. And when we look at the uses, the possible uses for ends, it refers to extremity the border outskirts at the end of a certain time. So when it applies uh, to space, when it applies to a place, it is at the border, which tells us that east, when it is designated ends of the earth, refers to the far east, not middle east or near east, but specifically at the extremity, at the very border, which is far east. It can also be applied in terms of a temporal end close to the end of time. This is why poetically, aesthetically, it is a beautiful prophecy because it fits the theme of extremities. And so this work is going to begin at the border of the far east, and it's going to take place at the border of the end of the world. And so it fits the theme of ends of the earth, applying to both place and 
time because when we look at this work and we're going to expand on this and explore this quite a bit in our next series of Bible studies, we will look and analyze at the, the meaning of Isaiah 43, 5 down to 6. For now, we've proven and show that the best understanding of the term feast in this passage, when Mizrach is used, is far east. Not near east, not Middle East, my friends, but far east. Okay? All right, let's go to our final question for today. And it's a question that was submitted to me or to us. And when I first got this question, it made me actually think, oh, <laughs> I had no idea about Isaiah 65.11. Um, but I'm, I'm really thankful for the one who uh, sent this question because it does make us want to think even more about being careful about how we use certain words. The question is, did you know uh, the word God is in direct violation with Exodus 23.13, to not mention the name of false deities. God and money are the correct Paleo-Hebrew ways to pronounce the names of the false deities prophesied in Isaiah 65, verse 11. Check out this translation. It has removed all paganism from the scriptures. He's referring to the Hallelujah scriptures. And I do, in fact, have that translation of scriptures, and I recommend that, script, that, that translation uh, for those who want the actual Paleo-Hebrew script of the name of Yahuwah and Yahusha, because that's what you're going to find in that particular translation of scripture. Again, it's the Hallelujah uh, scripture translation. Now, let's go to the question. Uh, did you know that the word God is in direct violation with Exodus uh, 23, verse 13? So let's go ahead and read Exodus 23, verse 13. This is what it says. And in all that I have said to you, be circumspect, right, and make no mention of the name of other gods, nor let it be heard from the mouth. So according to the book of Exodus 23.13, we are not to mention the names of other gods, let it not be heard from our mouth, right? And so that's Exodus 23.13. And when you read this passage, we say amen, right? I agree. We should not mention the names of other gods in our mouths. But uh, it goes on to say in, in Isaiah 65, 11, uh, and he goes to not mention, he, he says, God and money are the correct Paleo-Hebrew ways to pronounce the names of the false deities prophesied in Isaiah 65, verse 11. Okay? And so because in Isaiah 65, verse 11, he says it mentions the names of false gods, and when you pronounce it correctly in Paleo-Hebrew way, it sounds like God and money in our English. And so let's take a look at Isaiah 65 verse 11. But you are, but you are those who forsake Yahuwah, who forget my holy mountain, who prepare a table for Gad, and who furnish a drink offering for many. Now, when you think about it, it does kind of sound like God and money, right? Especially if you have a certain accent. Sometimes people with Filipino accent, for example, when they call on the name of God, they sometimes pronounce it Gad, right? Almighty Gad, right? I've heard that many times before. And I think it, we can make the same argument for, for money. 
it's very easy to say many. And according to the one who wrote in the question, when it's pronounced according to the Hebrew, Paleo-Hebrew pronunciation, it sounds like God and money. And so when we mention God in our prayer, when we mention God in our hymn singing, we are in fact praising this gad, G-A-D, and when we say money, give money, give money, right? We are in fact using the name of the false god, many. Now, what exactly does gad and many mean? So if you go to the Blue Letter Bible, and we'll look at Gad, it uses the Hebrew word 1408, and sure enough, it is a proper masculine noun. It refers to a god of fortune, a Babylonian deity. So it's a false god believed by the Babylonians. And money, well, not money, many, the Hebrew word 4507, and sure enough, it's a proper masculine noun. Many means fate or fortune and so it refers to the god of fate who the jews worship in babylonia look at that and so there are indeed false babylonian gods what are their names gad and many and so i want to see a show of hands how many of you have heard of these false gods gad and many before how many I've never heard of them before. It's only now that I am really like looking into this, Gad and many. But sure enough, sure enough, this is why I'm so thankful to the one who submitted the question. Sure enough, Gad and many are names of a false, a false gods, right? They're both Babylonian gods. And then in Exodus 23, 13, and in all that I have said to you, be circumspect and make no mention of the name of other gods, nor let it be heard from your mouth. And so because it says that it should not be heard from our mouth, the name God and many, we should no longer use the term God. Because after all, when we say God, it does sound a lot like God. And if it's true that the Paleo-Hebrew pronunciation is actually God, then every time we are calling God, every time we use the term God, then we are using the term of a false God. We, we are verbalizing the name of a false God. And so the question is, which is what we kind of want to mainly address in this episode of the DQA, should we stop then using the term God. Well, let's think about that for a while. In the book of Exodus 23, 13, when the Bible tells us, let it, let it be, do not let it be heard from your mouth, right? When it says that, it's actually connected to the mentioning of the name of other gods. And so when the Bible is making this prohibition of verbalizing with our mouth, the name of these other gods, it says, do not mention them. So what is the meaning of the word mention, the Hebrew word of mention? It says here, the Hebrew, two, uh, Hebrew word 2142, which is zakar. And what is the meaning of zakar? It is to remember, to recall, to mind, to bring to remembrance. 
And so when the prohibition was given not to verbalize the names of these false gods, it is in connection with remembering these false gods, remembering and honoring these false gods. This is why I asked you earlier, remember the question I asked you, how many of you have heard of these false gods, Gad and many? You said, no, I don't know who they are. Because when we mention God, G-O-D, when we mention God, we're not referring to Gad, are we? When we mention the word God, what are we referring to? Well, we're referring to the one who created all things. That's why in Psalm 100 verse 3, know that Yahuwah, he is God. It is he who has made us, not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. So when we use the term God, we're not remembering Gad. When we use the term God, we're not referring to the false deity of the Babylonians. When we use the term God, who is it that we are referring to? We are referring to Yahuwah who created and made us and who created all things. So when we say God, we're referring to the creator, right? Which is the Hebrew word Elohim. In the Paleo-Hebrew, Elohim, right? Now, of course, when we pray sometimes, when we sing hymns sometimes, we often use the word Elohim, right? You hear that from, from us, those who are preaching the word of God. And because God does sound a lot like Gad, I think from now on, for me personally, I will use Elohim instead of God. Okay, but it doesn't mean it is a sin to use the term God. Because when we use the term God, we're not referring to Gad, the false Babylonian God, right? What we are referring to is who? The one who created all things. This is why to answer the question, should we stop using the term God? I say it's not a sin to do that. But for me, just for me, my personal use, I'm going to be referring to the creator as Allahim. Because it does kind of sound like God, doesn't it? And I don't want to, to do that. But at the same time, the book of Exodus does give us a warning. Right? When we go back to Exodus 23, 13. And in all that I have said to you, be circumspect, be circumspect, and make no mention of the name of other gods, nor let it be heard from your mouth. Now, when it says be circumspect, what does that mean? Hebrew word is Hebrew H104, according to the Strong's definition, and it's the Hebrew word samar, which means to keep, to guard, to observe, to give heed, to be on one's guard, to take care, to beware. And so what the Bible is telling us is we need to be circumspect and make no mention of the name of other gods. In other words, we need to be careful that we don't end up honoring and glorifying a false God. Okay. Now, having said that, why should we be careful when we use the term God, even if what we're referring to is Elohim, because I know in your mind, when you're thinking of God, it's Elohim or Allahim. But even when we use the term Allahim, when we say God, we still have to be circumspect. Why is that? 
If we go back to the Hebrew meaning of God, the way we understand it, it is from the Hebrew word 430, which means Elohim, right? Do you know what the definition is of Elohim according to Strong's? We look at the way it's used in the Holy Bible. Look at all those uses for Elohim. God, goddesses. So if we're not circumspect, if we're not aware and are, we are not careful, we could in fact end up honoring a different God, not the one who created all things. Because the term Elohim or Allahim is a general term which has different uses, uses in the Holy Bible. And sometimes it's used to refer to a false god or a false goddess. So when you use the term G-O-D in big capital G, you're thinking, oh, I'm referring to the creator of all things. Not all the time. This is why we have to be specific when, it's, when we use the word God. Because when we use the word God, which is Elohim or Allahim in Hebrew, it can apply to both a god or goddess. That's why in the book of First Kings, for example, 1133, because they have forsaken me and worship Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, Chamosh, the god of the Moabites, and Milcom, the god of the people of Ammon, and have not walked in my ways to do what is right in my eyes and keep statutes and my judgments, as did his father David. Here, it mentions Ashtoreth and Chemosh. One's a goddess, one's a god. And in our English, it is spelled with a lowercase g-o-d, right? But in Hebrew, what does it actually say? For example, Ashtoreth. Ash, this is the Hebrew in the Bula of the Bible. Ashtoreth, the goddess, what word is used when it says goddess? Ashtoreth, the Elohim. Hebrew word 430, Elohim. And so Ashtoreth is called Elohim in the Holy Bible. How about Chemosh? Same word, Elohim, the Hebrew word 430. And when it comes to the one who made all things, it's the same word, Elohim. And so when we say Elohim, when we cry out God, we have to be circumspect. We have to be careful. How can we be careful whenever we do mention the word God? By specifying, right? What, who, which Elohim? by specifying which of the Elohims that's found in the Bible we're referring to. This is why Yahuwah made sure that he gave us his name. That's why he said, I am Yahuwah. That is my name and my glory I will not give to another nor my praise to carved images. And so for us to be circumspect, whenever you use the term God or Elohim, we need to specify who. And that specification is the name. This is why when people say that the name of God is not important to know, they do not understand that the designation of the term Elohim doesn't mean creator. The word Elohim is a generic term for a celestial being. And so you have to specify who. Is it the Elohim who created all things or an Elohim? who is a celestial being, a god or goddess. This is why the name is important. You cannot simply just say, I worship God. Which God? You worship God who created all things. Yahuwah, who is the creator, 
creator of all things. This is why Yahuwah said, I am Yahuwah, that is my name. And my glory I will not give to another, nor my praise to carved images for us to be careful, for us to truly give honor to the truth and creator of all things. We need to use the name of Yahuwah. This is why even when it comes to salvation, what is the blessing of using the name of Yahuwah? In the book of Acts, chapter 2, the last passage of our studies today, the sun shall uh, be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of Yahuwah, and it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of Yahuwah shall be saved. This is why he don't simply call on God. I'm calling on God. No. Bible specifies call on the name of Yahuwah. Because if you just say, I'm calling God, what God? Ashtoreth? Gad? Many? Or is it Jamosh? You have to specify. Yahuwah. It is Yahuwah who will save. And because of this, we need to give glory to his name, worship his name, and use his name for praise, and call upon his name, Yahuwah. Because Yahuwah is the name of the Allahim who created all things. And so by using the name of Yahuwah, we recognize him as the creator of all things, the one that we worship and call upon for our salvation. That is our study for today. Let us conclude with a prayer. Almighty and loving Abba, thank you so much, gracious Yahuwah. It is you that we recognize to be the creator of all things. We praise you, our almighty Allahim in heaven. Father, please be with your people. Help us to know more about you, to understand your will, to apply them in our life. Our King Yahushua, we also give ourselves to you. We submit to your authority that was given to you by Abba. You have authority in heaven and on earth. You are the one who holds the book of life. We praise you and worship you. Please remember your servants and strengthen our faith always. Father, thank you for blessing us in this study of your commandments, of your holy words this evening. May you please continue to watch over our ways. We ask and beg everything, loving Father, in the name of our Lord and Savior, Yahusha HaMashiach. Amen.